0: Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one guest today, the journalist Liza Featherstone, talking about her new book, Divining Desire, a study of focus groups published by Orr Books in partnership with CounterPoint. The effects of focus groups are all around us. Consumer products, entertainment products, political products. Malcolm Gladwell famously blamed the flop that was New Coke way back in 1985 on focus groups. As he so often is, Gladwell was wrong. If a movie seems banal, we may blame it on a focus group. And politicians like George W. Bush and Donald J. Trump often brag about not using focus groups. Bush was lying, and as far as we know, Trump isn't. We often condemn politicians like either Clinton, Bill, or Hillary for being entirely the inauthentic product of focus groups. The late Steve Jobs was contemptuous of them. People who like to think of themselves as original thinkers and bold leaders are often that way. But, on the other hand, what is wrong with trying to find out what people think about your product, whether it be a movie, a soft drink, or an agenda? How pervasive are these things? Where did they come from? Spoiler, a bunch of Viennese socialist intellectuals 80 years ago. What is the process like? What do marketers think of them and their participants? And what do they mean in the larger scheme of things? These are the questions that Liza Featherstone looks at in Divining Desire. Her larger point is that focus groups are symptomatic of what she calls our culture of consultation. In a world of pseudo-democracy, where people have little power, elites have devised a whole set of institutions and practices to make them feel listened to. Focus groups are one of those. Featherstone is the author of several books, including Selling Women Short, the story of the giant sex discrimination suit against Walmart. She also writes an advice column, which covers the interface of the political and the personal for The Nation magazine. And I must also say she is my wife. But my admiration for her work is not the result of nepotism. My admiration for her work is one of the many reasons I married her. Okay, here's the first part of my interview with Liza Featherstone, author of Divining Desire, Focus Groups in the Culture of Consultation. Let's start with a basic definition. What is a focus group?
1: A focus group is um, a group of about, um, usually about eight or 12 people led by a moderator. They are led in, Focusing, usually on a particular question or text, often it's a piece of advertising or a particular product. Both parts of the term are important. Um, The term um, focus, as this was an an innovation to really try to get um, groups to um, focus together on a particular text, Um, and the group part is also important as well.
0: And uh, this is used in a wide variety of things, right? Uh, Politics, consumer products?
1: Just about everything in our life um, that surrounds us may well have um, been produced or approved or tested by focus group. We focus group consumer products, advertising, political messages, and of course that's um, the part that gets most attention.
0: And as you go around talking about this book, do you find that people are full of ideas on what focus groups are? Uh, do they, they know what they are, have opinions?
1: Yeah, people do have a lot of opinions about focus groups. A lot of people have been part of focus groups, have been um, been participants. Also, um, most people um, are part of, of the culture of, of hating focus groups. Even though focus groups are a completely integral part of our marketing Um, mechanisms and um, completely integrated into our political life, most people still kind of hate them.
0: And what is the hatred based
1: on? The hatred comes from two places. Professionals, um, elites and the professionals who do their thinking for them are the biggest users of focus groups. They're the most likely to have to conduct a focus group to see what people think about their product or their political message um, or, or what have you. But they don't like it. They don't like having to listen to the people. You get all these uninformed people in a room, and it's really frustrating for the clients. One market researcher said the clients hate the focus groups because they learn that people don't really care that much about them or their products. It's injurious to their narcissism. Um, But on the other hand, they also um, hate the way that these people are given so much space to hold forth. It can seem kind of unfair to them that these these uninformed, ordinary people are allowed to talk and are given a, 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 a platform. And I interviewed a lot of people who had been on the client side who did indeed feel that way. On the other hand, most people sort of hate focus groups as part of the masses. We feel these people don't really represent us somehow. Like we look at focus groups on TV, you know, Frank Luntz is interviewing a bunch of slow-witted seeming um, regular Americans who can't seem to make up their mind about basic issues of the day. The title of one of my chapters um, comes from um, um, watching TV with a friend and a a, um, focus group of this kind comes on TV um, and she says, Who are these appalling people? And who are these appalling people is a, is a reaction a lot of us have in response to focus groups. We, we, we look at them and we say, you know, like, wow, are we really meeting our fellow Americans? This is uh, quite distressing. And you see this in a lot of um, online commentary about the focus groups. Video game um, um, message boards, people say this is a terrible game. It must have been made by a focus group. Um, movies, um, same thing. People really have have a tendency um, to to feel that the um, that that the that the focus groups are to blame. As Adolf Reed once said, uh, "No one
0: ever self identified as a member of the masses."
1: Exactly. Uh, we all feel that we're a bit above average, at least, um, and that um, and so so the focus groups are sort of deplorable to use um, (laughs) Hillary Clinton's memorable term um, precisely because of their averageness. Uh, We we all want to place ourselves just at least a little bit above the deplorable.
0: But on the other hand all these appalling deplorables are quite happy to have an opportunity to vent and have someone listen to them.
1: People love to be in the focus groups, that's right. If we're on that side of it as part of the focus group We generally really enjoy ourselves. We like to have our opinion heard. People really um, like the feeling of being listened to. Market researchers comment on that a lot. People say, thank you so much for listening to me. And the people I interviewed who um, were frequent participants in focus groups mentioned that too. One woman said, um, in fact, it might speak to a desperation to be heard, Um, how much she enjoyed participating. Since it seems like no one else is listening. That's right.
0: Uh, Let's go uh, back to the history of these things. Uh, They have a curious origin among a bunch of Viennese socialists, not the kinds of people that uh, you you would think of as uh, inventing this very standard capitalist practice.
1: That's right. It's not cooked up in a Procter & Gamble conference room. So in the 1920s, um, Vienna was in the rather unique position of having um, municipal socialism, socialism in one city, despite a very conservative um, government in the rest of Austria. The socialists who had come to power were um, very smart, very intellectual, very well-educated, very much members of an intelligentsia, members of of an elite um, in Vienna.
0: Who presumed to speak for the masses.
1: Yes. So they were social democrats. They were very committed... Both to making a certain idea of socialism work, and for making a democracy work, which was also quite a new thing in that political context, they they quickly realized to have both to make socialism and to make democracy work, you had to have some idea. Of what the people were thinking, and they were quite detached um, as as members of the elite. You know, they were psychoanalysts, they were academics. Um, you know, they 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 weren't very connected to the working class. And the thing, the ideas that they had about the working class, the working class was more or less on board with their um, with their economic ideas, uh, good public services, and general redistribution of, of wealth. Um, but um, The Viennese socialists um, also also wanted the um, working class to um, really be all around more wholesome people. They wanted them to not have sex outside of marriage, um, not drink so much, um, play team sports, join chess clubs.
0: They wanted to take much of the joy out of life.
1: (laughs) So they wanted to take a lot of joy out of life, and they wanted to. They also wanted to impose, um, you know. And we can d- debate whether this is a good or a bad idea. They wanted to um, impose their ideas about culture onto the masses. They wanted them to listen to opera um, rather than to soap operas. Um, the working class was not very interested in doing these things: playing team sports, listening to opera. And years later, um, Paul Lazarsfeld. Who would go on to invent the focus group um, and was a um, young viennese socialist at the time very active in the party explained that they had developed um, all these um, new qualitative research methods new ways of listening to people um, because he said we wanted to understand why our propaganda was unsuccessful so the focus group Emerges from a variety of qualitative methods that were first tr- um, became necessary in this context, where an elite has um, a lot of ideas um, about how to improve society, but finds that those ideas um, require a better understanding of the of the masses, a- and that in fact um, there's there's quite a gulf between the elites and the masses. So that was something that um, even um, even though they were socialists, the Viennese struggled with.
0: So into Vienna then steps Hitler, right? Yes. <laughs> and these guys uh, relocate. Uh, their right, elitism. well, first
1: another right-wing movement, but then Hitler, yes.
0: Tell us about the relocation of the, the center of the focus group uh, to Columbia University.
1: Paul Lazarsfeld, um, while being um, active in the Socialist Party, was also um, flourishing as a, um, as a young scholar, trying out all kinds of qualitative research um, at an institute in Vienna. He has to flee the Nazis, um, being Jewish and a socialist, um, and he comes to the United States. There's a variety of adventures in there, but he ends up at um, Columbia University, um, where um, he um, is very innovative about um, how to secure support um, for his research. And he, um, he really um, pioneers Commercial contracts and government contracts. Um, now that's considered quite commonplace in academia to um, to to finance um, parts of your um, your your research enterprise um, in these ways. But then it was quite unusual. One of his contracts is with the Office of War Information, the Roosevelt administration, and once again, um, a group of um, well intentioned social democrats. Um, wants to understand why their propaganda is unsuccessful. (laughs) Um, The Roosevelt administration is trying to convince uh, the American masses to make the sacrifices um, needed, both in lives and material comforts, um, to enter World War II. Um, And um, the American masses um, are not particularly interested in doing that. And Paul Lazarsfeld um, and his um, bureau are charged with um, testing the propaganda and figuring out why. Um, out of um, out of this research um, comes something that we would now very much um, call the focus group.
0: I'm speaking with Liza Featherstone, author of Divining Desire from Or Books and Counterpoint Books. So, how did they make the transition from being a propaganda outfit into being a commercial enterprise?
1: So, sometimes there are these 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 characters. Um, in history, whose personalities encompass all these different contradictions, and um, and somehow make these transitions work. So, Lazarsfeld is a, a you know a committed social democrat, but he's also um, quite a hustler. Um, he's al- he's got a hustle on even back in Vienna. Um, so, some of his early qualitative research is market research, even back in Vienna, where he's studying all kinds of um, worthy social topics like unemployment um, and, you know, trying to figure out how to get people to embrace municipal socialism, he's also, um, he's also testing how can um, local laundromats get people to send out their laundry. Um, you know, he discovers that when interviewed about their real feelings, housewives feel guilty sending out their laundry, but they would do it if someone in the family had recently died, um, because then they felt justified in, in abdicating this labor of, of doing the wash themselves. So then the, the, the laundromats took this on board and, um, and w- would then target with um with pamphlets of houses in which someone had recently died, <laughs> and they didn't go around
0: killing
1: people. Though. They didn't go around killing people, but but uh, this is to say that the co- the, the commercial impulse um, and the social democratic were always intertwined in the person of of Paul Lazarsfeld. So he was always um, trying out these methods um, for 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 both purposes. Once they really invent the focus group at Columbia in working for the Office of War Information, it moves very quickly to Madison Avenue, partly because the Columbia researchers are busily taking on commercial contracts. They're working for media companies. They're working for um, consumer products. They're, um, you know, the, like a, alongside um, the um, the propaganda on Nazis, they're also testing Um, you know, commercials for um, relief of stomach acid. Um, Many of um, Lazarsfeld's students go into um, work on Madison Avenue. Um, People immediately see um, that that's going to be both profitable and interesting. Um, Most significantly in this period, Lazarsfeld's third wife, Herta Herzog, who was also first a student of his which was not something that was um, particularly um, frowned upon in that non-me too moment. <laughs> she uh, she leaves the bureau and goes to work on Madison Avenue, and she really um, develops um, the focus group um, much um, further um, as a um, specifically um, for testing commercial um, products, and she becomes very well known for that. But many of his other students do this as well.
0: In the early days of the focus group, it bears its Viennese stamp in that psychoanalysis was also a very large portion of their technique. Uh, Talk about that uh, role of psychoanalysis in early focus group work.
1: Yes, yes. Herta Herzog is particularly um, psychoanalytically inclined, as were many of um, their Viennese colleagues. In fact, there's a character on Mad Men who is almost certainly um, inspired by the, um, the person of Herta Herzog. There's a, um, a, a, a lady with a um, Viennese accent who, um, who writes a report for um, Don Draper on cigarettes and the death drive. This is very plausible. This is exactly the kind of, um, of, of work they would have done. There's a, a lot of psychoanalytic um, influence. Um, another um, figure quite um, prominent in that is Ernest Dichter who is was actually also a student of Lazarsfeld, um, and also Viennese, and he becomes very famous. He does focus groups and um, finds a lot of um, a lot of unconscious drives motivating consumers, um, a lot of sexuality in uh, what people are looking for in a car. He helps develop the marketing of the Barbie doll.
0: Make the breasts bigger,
1: right? Yeah, make the breasts bigger. Um, but also how Barbie spoke to the aspirations of little girls to become big girls. And, and Even so, if the mothers weren't comfortable with it. Yes, mothers were very un- uncomfortable with the sexuality, and there were actually some adjustments um, to um, ch- change her dress, make her a little bit less sexual, um, because mothers are the ones going to who are going to be buying the Barbie. But one of the interesting things, though, is that while um, observers at the time... Made much of all the um of all the sexual drives and the obsessions with death um, and you know all that I- interesting stuff that we associate with European psychoanalysis um what was actually more at work with um mid century American market research. Um, was um not so much um the influence of Freud as we think of him the sex and death guy the sex and death guy um not you know and and you know not so much the sort of <laughs> depressive resignation to you know ordinary unhappiness, but much more a different Viennese psychoanalyst Adler who was was very influential on um lazarsfeld um Dichter, Herder Herzog—all those Viennese who were working on the focus group—and um, um, and what's different about Adler than Freud um, is um, that um, he really um, emphasizes the adaptation of the individual, um, like that how um, and and the way that the individual um, needs to function within the collective, within the group. So. Um, the focus group is the is the perfect way to look at um, how the individual responds to things in a social context. You know whether that's um, products, political messaging, but um, but and um, and and also Adlerian psychology is really um, well suited to um, looking at our aspirations. Um, as so it was it was really about aspiration as much as it was about these dark drives and how, aspirations
0: effected into a consumer product
1: exactly how um, consumer products could speak to our aspirations so it's not so much the tits on the Barbie that are critical, it's the little girls' desire to become big girls. You know, and it's and, and the sort of the
0: And it has certainly has nothing to do with primal nostalgia for mother. <laughs> yeah. Troublesome I stuff. I mean it
1: like it may have, but it's that wasn't primarily what the mid century advertisers were tapping into. Um, they were really seeing um how um how consumer products could speak to our dreams.
0: Which fit very nicely with the golden age narratives of the fifties. Con- consumption is freedom.
1: You know, exactly.
0: Our products will bury the commies.
1: Exactly. All so, that stuff fit right in. Yes. And, and, the, and the, the focus group is, ex, is extremely important in this Cold War context because elites are engaged in an extremely um, challenging persuasive project. Um, they're trying to persuade people who have been um, used to making sacrifices in World War II to now switch to a much more materialistic lifestyle. And they're they're trying to convince people to buy all this stuff um, that most people don't really need that much. But then they're also trying to engage people in a, um, a, a larger project, a, a larger ideological project of... Um, embracing consumer capitalism as something superior to communism a lot of the rhetoric in this period um, emphasizes how um, uh, like our way of life is so much better because um, everybody can have all of this stuff it emphasizes the um, that you know that, that that the ways in which consumer capitalism is really just like socialism, because it can allow ordinary people to live like kings. I mean, Even better.
0: Yeah. But it's a, a nice fusion of the propagandistic roots of the thing with exactly. uh, monetary interest.
1: Yes, very
0: much so. I was the first part of my interview with Liza Featherstone, author of Divining Desire, Focus Groups and the Culture of Consultation, published by Orr Books in partnership with Counterpoint. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. So, some of the Barcarolle from Anna Natur Trilogie by Heinz Thiessen, performed by Matthew Rubinstein. And now, on to part two of my interview with Liza Featherstone, author of Divining Desire from Or Books and Counterpoint. There was a big backlash that developed in the 50s against marketing, market research, and the focus group very much part of that. The star of that, perhaps now forgotten, uh, Vance Packard, but that he still casts a long shadow even today, 50, 60 years later, right?
1: That's right. Vance Packard um er, emerges in this period um as um as as a tremendously influential critic of market research and um focus groups and market research in general. And yeah, although most people have um probably um no, not heard of him, um he he remains tremendously influential on the left-wing view of advertising and focus groups. He was a um, the son of a um, Protestant minister. It really comes across when you read the um, when you read his book, *The Hidden Persuaders*, which was startlingly a huge bestseller. I mean, today, mid late fifties. Um, yeah, it was published in um, 1957. He, a huge bestseller. I mean, and you know, the, which is kind of funny today because, I mean, it would be um, it would be as if. Uh, um, I mean, I I I can't even think what like what's what what's the most paranoid and overheated left wing book you can think of? I mean, you know, it's like, some of them may have been
0: my guests, so I don't want to. Yeah, exactly. Don't <laughs> so so mention
1: it. They're probably, they're probably whoever the author of that is probably listening, um, but it's very paranoid and overheated, and he doesn't quite say that subliminal messaging um, um, exists, um, but he um, he alludes to the possibility that advertisers are sending um, are, are sending people um, subliminal messages um, to to get us to buy more. He's um, hard I mean, that
0: entered folk wisdom, because I remember people were saying, you go to the drive-in movie, it's gonna say, buy Coke now. That's right. Flashed on for a millisecond, and then suddenly there'll be an influx of people- uh, That's right. At the, at the drink stand.
1: That's right. There were a lot of myths floating around at that time about, um, about um, su- subliminal messaging and how far along that was. Packard researched market research and was very disturbed um, by the psychoanalysis. He was very um, horrified by the idea that um, that sex drives would play a part in um, our, our desires for focus groups and that corporations would exploit these. It's not just that it reads as naive from our, you know, now jaded, you know, we're so used to advertising and we're like, oh, of course sex sells things. It is also this um, tremendously parochial and defensive American attitude toward the psych- toward psychoanalysis and the unconscious. That was one of the reasons his book was so popular is that Americans were really fascinated by freudianism. Um, but a little upset by it like a little upset by the idea that that they had drives of which they were unaware and so so this was sort of just constantly bubbling over into the into the pop culture and it was one of the things that people were so horrified by and Packard's hidden persuaders tapped right into that advertisers are exploiting you by looking at your unconscious and using your unconscious desires and drives to sell you things, and this was this was really this was very upsetting to people. It's really had a long influence um, because, in in addition to being very puritanical and also a little sexist, the um, the, the view of the consumer who is. Um, who was generally in mid-century feminized because partly because women did do so much of the shopping for the household, but also because that was the consumer about which the um, male industry knew less about. So the consumer, the female consumer, always needed to be um, further researched. Um, so, um, so 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 the, the, there's sort of an assumption that the consumer is very vulnerable and is is a little um, bit um, helpless and. That the that industry is um, is sort of is preying upon her, um, that that is a a little um, a little patronizing to the modern um, feminist reader, but it's also um, I think it's really affected the way um, the left thinks about consumerism and about persuasion. We've somewhat undersold, oversold perhaps how how passive the um, reception. Um, of these messages is and and how um, effective it is in in some ways the 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 market researchers um defending themselves against Packard at the time um, sound um, now sound more credible um, as as they argue, well, actually, you know, people are really complicated. Women are very complicated. That's why we have to do so much research. Um, we, we don't think that they're um, stupid or fall for things easily.
0: And speaking of women, um, women did play some role in, in the focus group game, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because the consumer was so often thought of um, as female and the female consumer was... Um, viewed um, by industry as rather mysterious, there was a great need to um, to talk to women and find out their views. Um, and male market researchers found out fairly quickly they didn't always communicate with the female consumers um, as as well as they could. They sometimes um, had had trouble um, getting them to really open up and um, and even understanding what they were uh, what they were saying to them. Out of this need to um, do better listening, to do better listening to women, um, emerged a a need for women researchers. So you see in this period a lot of um, women going into market research, um, both um, at the level of the firm, the advertising firm. But also, um, you see a lot of independent market researchers emerging, women, w- women um, f- uh, um, starting their own sm- very small firms. Um, and to this day, a lot of market research is done by um, w- women-owned, w- women fairly small um, market research firms like this.
0: And as with uh, the larger field of psychology, uh, the focus group moved away from psychoanalysis. What they do? Uh, what kind of psychology took over?
1: Yeah, the psychoanalytic um focus group really um has its day in the 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 50, the 50s early 60s like the rest of the culture it um it, it moves away from that and um moves toward much more um, straightforward um discussions um of what people's experience actually is with products or you know taking a text and relating it to people's uh, to to people's actual experience the type of expertise that is tapped into in leading focus groups shifts um, away from these psychoanalytically trained people and more toward for instance um therapists skilled in leading group therapy. Um, and this is and, group therapy
0: is becoming more prominent in, in the shrink field.
1: Yes. So just as group therapy, um, again, a very Adlerian influence based on the conviction that the individual really needs um, to um, learn how to adapt in the context of, of a group. The group therapy um, um, scenario takes that quite literally um, and becomes um huge in um, in psychotherapy in the um in the 50s and then many of those therapists um moved to Madison Avenue to um apply their trade in the um in the in the focus group as well the groups also become just much more um straightforward you know so so even by the 60s i was looking at um tobacco focus groups um, from the 60s, and they're not exploring, you know, how people feel about death, um, you know, or anything like that, and in fact, um, there's one um, moment where they're looking at a picture of a hand crushing a um, box of cigarettes, and the, the group is discussing the gender, who, like, is this a woman's hand? The group leader doesn't explore whether the group is concerned about castration, you know, the woman's hand is crushing the cigarettes. You know, a, a 50s group leader um, you know, with, a, with a, you know, Viennese training would have certainly probed that. By the 60s, they're just kind of letting all of that go by and just sort of trying to, um, you know, just trying to figure out, you know, straightforwardly what are people's experiences and stated desires about products.
0: Two questions about groups. One, a mundane one, I guess. The group dynamics, what about that? Are they dominated by charismatic people who talk a lot, that uh, sort of marginalize the shy? You would think that, you know, the researchers would want to know what the shy people think as well. So how do they handle all that?
1: Interestingly, a lot of people think um, that um, this is a huge flaw of the focus group, you know, that they're going to be a couple dominant personalities, they're going to talk over everybody or intimidate everyone into thinking the way that they do, and that this is a problem. Market researchers will tell you, and I must say I am convinced by this, it's not a problem, because the um, one of the things that the focus group is doing is looking at the individual in a social context um, and recognizing that markets are social. So for example, New Coke. Shall I jump ahead to New Coke? No, let's,
0: let's, let's wait a moment on New Coke. Uh,
1: OK, yeah. but it's an example of what okay, you're yes, talking about. Yes. Well, I'll, I'll answer your question more abstractly then, yeah. um, which is if you get a situation in which um, you know the a dominant personality says, I hate that, you know, and, um, and everybody else um, you know, is a little on the fence but comes around to hate the thing too. That's very valuable information for your client to know that when it is out in the world, um, this is the way um, socially the conversation around your product could play out because that's the way life is. Powerful personalities um, do influence us, you know, and um, you know the people around us um, do shape our opinions and reactions to things. We don't really have pure reactions that are not informed by our our friends and the people around us. That's something that the market researchers are actually um, right about. That's not a flaw of the focus group. It's actually a strength that it can really illuminate what goes uh, what goes on 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 with us socially.
0: And now one more question about groups before I get to New Coke. The consciousness-raising groups, uh, the feminist groups of the 1970s, did they have any inspiration from or influence on the focus group?
1: Yeah. The 70s is a time where we really love to talk about things in groups. Um, you have encounter groups um, you know, where people get together and talk about their feelings, and you have um, the, the consciousness-raising groups of, of the feminist movement, and um, this receptiveness to groups and this sort of um, relish of talking about things in groups helps to acclimate the culture um, to, to things like the focus group. Um, it's also, in this period, um, the two often seem so parallel because part of what's being discussed in focus groups at that time, um, even the focus groups on consumer products, is gender roles. Um, advertisers are really trying to figure out how to appeal to women in a time in which gender roles are changing. Women are very annoyed with sexist advertising. Um, advertising itself becomes a target um, of the, of feminist criticism, um, and um, and so there um, so there very much is a, um, a, a sort of a, a cultural fluidity between what's going on in the focus groups and what's going on in the consciousness-raising groups.
0: I'm speaking with Liza Featherstone, author of Divining Desire, from Or Books and Counterpoint Books. And now, uh, failures. You write at length about two reputed failures of the focus group, the Edsel and New Coke. I'll I'll, I'll let people read about uh, the Edsel in the book. But New Coke and Malcolm Gladwell had a lot to do with making this alleged failure
1: popular. Truth, it's really not a failure it's a very interesting thing there's a great desire to um, scapegoat the focus group and blame the focus group for what what are essentially failures at the top of 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 the corporation that's something that we uh, we see in the Edsel story too so people will enjoy that when they read it so uh, you, this is trotted out time and again people will say focus groups are terrible, and New Coke is a perfect example of a terrible, unpopular product produced by a focus group. First of all, New Coke was actually tested in focus groups. People liked the taste, but they didn't, people very much didn't like the idea of changing a beloved product. And in focus groups, they talked about that. You hear from so many self-appointed experts, and Malcolm Gladwell is only the most famous one. They didn't ask the right question. They didn't ask people how they felt um, about the changing of a beloved brand. It's not true. They did. Um, the, the, they they did ask people how they felt about the change about changing a beloved brand, brand. and the um, the reception in the focus group um, to that to that was fairly negative, but um, Coke didn't listen. Anyone who was alive at the time remembers the public outrage.
0: Even an anti-American commie like me was
1: outraged. Of course. <laughs> they were changing Coke. I know. I know. Um, the, uh, One of the better things about American culture. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, so here's what happened in the focus groups. What, what happened was they said, how would you feel about we're going to change um, a prominent soft drink you know that has you know, been part of American culture, It's been part of every, like everyday life. A slight majority of the group says they'd be interested in trying it. A few people freak out completely and say, "This is terrible. This is the worst idea. I hope they're not going to change coke. You know, and you know these people are very upset that that vocal minority, Um, gets the rest of the group very upset Um, and and then everybody's upset everyone in the focus group is upset. Interestingly this exactly mirrored what happened in the culture. Coke rolls out its new Coke after you know Bill Cosby um, you know we Look on that a bit differently now, but at the time, it's hard to remember. He was he was in fact quite beloved in American culture. He goes on um, in an ad and says he's been a lifelong Coke drinker and he loves the new Coke. You know, this is there's this uh, sort of big rollout. At first, people like it. This tastes even better. It's a little more like Pepsi, which in taste tests people actually generally do. Sweeter like and less
0: gassy, as I recall. Yeah,
1: yeah. People uh, pe- pe- people generally did want their Coke to taste more like Pepsi in Taste Us. Um, and people like it better at first when it's rolled out. But a very vocal minority freaks out completely in the marketplace, just as they did in the um in in the focus groups. They get upset they call Coca-Cola's headquarters. Coca-Cola has to set up a hotline just to receive all the upset people um, they're calling and saying things like You know, it's as if you have destroyed the American flag, Um, you know, like the... I feel as if somebody died, like, I mean, people are just, like, people are very upset. This um, feeling of upset, and this is before the internet, I mean, can you imagine the outrage that this this would be, this would be the outrage of the month on the internet now, but despite the lack of the internet, they managed to get everybody else in the culture very upset about this too, and then it's just a comprehensive um, market rejection of uh, of New Coke. Which
0: is a reproduction of what happened in the focus groups.
1: An exact reproduction of what happened in so the focus groups. So they'd only group. listened. That's really the conclusion. I mean, that the whole story is really um, hardly a repudiation of the focus group, but actually an affirmation of, of, of perhaps, uh, perhaps they should have listened. But it's interesting that these mythologies around the focus group and how useless it is um, tend to... Um, really take hold um, because elites want to believe it, because um, elites um, hate having to consult the focus group because they hate having to consult ordinary people um, about corporate decisions. And the rest of us also sort of want to believe it too. Because we resent these focus groups. We don't feel these people really speak for us. We don't like the feeling of being, um, of being manipulated. We don't like the feeling of everything in, in life being so market-tested. Um, well, it's and, that feeling you get
0: when you look at Amazon said, people who like X also like Y.
1: Yeah. And they're
0: usually right. And you feel, oh, no, 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 it can't be
1: because I'm unique. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is stomping in my uniqueness. Exactly. And when something like New Coke happens, our sort of sentimental desire to believe that we're really special and can't be measured by these focus groups really comes into play. And Coca-Cola really took advantage of that. They said, they they, they actually, the CEO actually said, you know, there, it turns out there are some things that are just too special to be measured, and one of them is our, our feelings about a brand like Coca-Cola, And that's of course, absolutely ludicrous if there's one thing that can be measured, it's our feelings about Coca-Cola.: <laughs>
0: Yes. Uh, we're running a lot of time, so I want a couple of things more to cover. Uh, one is the role of the focus group in politics, and of course, you know you have people like W and Trump famously saying they don't use focus groups, uh, when, in fact W did. Right. The use of focus groups in politics excites contradictory impulses. One is that uh, the um, politicians who listen to focus groups are pandering; yeah. they're they're failing to lead. Right. The other one is that they're manipulating us and trying to make us swallow a bunch of crap we don't want to. How do focus groups function in politics?
1: Focus groups in um, in in politics are. They are contradictory in this way. Over the last um, couple decades, political messages have been extensively focus-grouped, both by Republicans and Democrats, um, though in some ways um, Democrats have probably used them more unapologetically and been more um, famous for their focus-group use. Frank Luntz, the Republican um, pollster, um, once said admiringly of, of Bill Clinton, the focus groups speak, and their words come right out of Bill Clinton's mouth. You know, what I mean? it's just. But he made it seem like his own. It, but he made it seem like his own. It was just part of the mechanism, to, by, by which um, Bill Clinton um, so seamlessly appeared to speak ordinary Americans' language. Um, is he, he? was really listening to the to the focus groups. It's absolutely true that focus groups um, do produce a very um, commercial and um, watered-down political message a lot of the time. However, I think it's also true that if we have an immensely unequal society in which um, people have very little, ordinary people have very little influence um, over politics, um, and um, the um, pr- probably the focus group is um, one small way that people are listened to. If, if it weren't for the focus group, political elites would be even more out of touch than they are. So to, um, to be fair, um, the, like the, it's um, it, it's extremely inadequate form of listening, but it's better than not listening. That said, what's interesting about the criticism of the focus groups in the political realm um, is that um, a lot of it does come from the right. Both H. W. Bush and W. Bush um, made um, a lot of um, theatrical declarations about how they didn't use focus groups, um, although both of them did. And and there was a, there was sort of a, a, a expectation among conservative voters, particularly, um, that there was something much more masculine and sort of. Pleasingly authoritarian about um, saying you didn't listen, that you didn't listen to the people. W was the decider. He said after a, after the 2003 anti-war protests, he said um, he made a big thing of how I don't govern by focus group. Um, you know, the focus group just became the stand-in for any input um, from the public. So the rejection of focus groups takes this aggressive and and elitist and anti-democratic form um, most dramatically um, in the recent person um, of Donald Trump, who said um, when he was asked if he used focus groups, he said, yeah, I do focus groups right here and he pointed to his head <laughs> where, where, not, much going <laughs> where not much is going on but he was trying to communicate that um that you know he was you know he's he's too he's too smart for that he just thinks it all up in his own head that sort of way that focus groups are, are sort of scapegoated and stand in for any kind of public input or public listening is also troubling what should really bother us um, about focus groups and politics um, is that um, as you see the rise of this culture of consultation, this culture of, of people being constantly listened to. Um, like Hillary
0: Clinton's listening tours.
1: Absolutely. I mean, she, she constantly would say, as some people have told me, like she was always alluding to all the different ways that she was listening to people, and she was, um, and and she was an extensively focus grouped data-driven candidate, which is um, why she um, appeared to be so inauthentic. One of the reasons she appeared to be so inauthentic. What should really um, bother us about that is not necessarily the use of the focus groups themselves, but the fact that. Their prevalence is a symptom of how distant and unaccountable political elites are to the vast majority of people, um, and um, how you know this incredibly artificial way of listening to people is, is is their only way of getting any information about what most people think um, be- because they are so um, far removed and because most people um, don't have any institutions um, representing them or any um, politicians who really represent them in any kind of authentic way. This culture of consultation that the focus group um, represents um, is really um, a symptom of an extremely unequal culture in which most people are very disempowered. And I think that that That's really what should bother us um, much more than the focus group itself.
0: And final question. The death of the focus group has been proclaimed or forecast many times. Uh, this time it's the Internet. Has Mark Zuckerberg killed the focus group?
1: I've found that people, for the last um, 15 years or so, the business press repeatedly declares the focus group is dead and you know writes various obituaries for it, almost always touting um, some um, brand new idea that they think is going to replace it like guess what we've just discovered crowdsourcing you know or something you know and you know a few years later all of that always looks really silly it's like yeah sure crowdsourcing all of these things just become part of the crowd of the culture of consultation along with the focus group but in terms of you know amount of money spent and you know number of businesses um, still active. The focus group persists um, in commercial life and political life and and I think that in in some form um, as long as we have out of touch elites who um, are are trying to make democracy and markets um, work you know to work those things require Um, the participation of the people, and some information about their desires. So as long as we have that situation, I think um, in some form the focus group will persist.
0: That was the second part of my interview with Liza Featherstone, author of Divining Desire, Focus Groups in the Culture of Consultation, from Orr Books in partnership with Counterpoint. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Someone taunted me on Facebook the other day for liking St. Vincent too much, so as a response, here's some St. Vincent singing Mass Seduction. Next week, bye. Smiling, nihilism, angry glass
1: at full, drinking, panic, panic, singing, rope, call. Teenage Christian virgins holding out their tongues, paranoid secretions falling on basement.